My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And I looked at what Canada did during the Second World War, and there's some pretty amazing examples there of how quickly we scaled up certain industries. It's incredible how, when we really put our minds to it, we can respond as if it's an emergency. And right now, we continue to hear that we're in a climate crisis, we're in a climate emergency, but we're definitely not acting like it. That's the voice of Emma Norton. She's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Emma Norton lives in Mi'kma'ki, in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. She first got involved in climate action as a student, and since graduating, she's worked for a number of different environmental and climate-focused organizations in Atlantic Canada. An important theme that has emerged in both her thinking and her activities related to climate is the essential connection between, on the one hand, practical changes in things like infrastructure and technology, and on the other, policy change. Either on its own is not enough. You need both. It is, for instance, much easier to make the case for policy change to decision-makers when the policy is grounded in practical measures that are proven and ready to implement. And without the right kinds of policy shifts, those kinds of emission reduction measures will never be implemented fast enough, at a large enough scale, or in just ways. One topic that Norton has learned a great deal about in the course of her climate work is building retrofits. That is, changing the infrastructure in existing buildings to improve their energy efficiency and reduce the consequent consumption of fossil fuels and emission of greenhouse gases. While basic retrofitting is easy enough, making the kinds of changes to a building necessary to reduce emissions past a certain threshold means doing things that are sufficiently expensive, time-consuming, and disruptive that it seriously limits uptake. Then Norton discovered a Dutch technology called Energy Sprung. Rather than ripping out significant components of buildings and replacing them as conventional deep retrofits require, it involves creating custom panels to go around the exterior walls and over the roof, resulting in an all-new exterior that contains the new infrastructure. It is much cheaper, faster, and less disruptive, and drastically reduces emissions. She and two other people co-founded the Recover Initiative, an organization working to bring this technology to the Canadian context in a non-proprietary, not-for-profit way. The other side of Norton's work is as the Atlantic Director of the Climate Emergency Unit, a project of the David Suzuki Institute. It's led by Seth Klein and based on the insights of his book The Good War, which draws on Canada's mobilization during the Second World War to imagine what it might look like if governments were to treat the climate crisis with the same seriousness. He argues we must spend whatever it takes, mandate action rather than just incentivize it, create new public institutions, and improve governmental communications about the realities of the crisis. He also adds two imperatives relevant to climate. We must leave no one behind by making sure that the transition is just, and we must respect Indigenous sovereignty and follow the leadership of Indigenous-led solutions. Along with all of the other advantages of such an approach, it would, if adopted, do a lot to allow practical solutions like energy-sprung technology to be rolled out at scale. 
A lot of Norton's work for the Climate Emergency Unit has focused on Newfoundland and Labrador, given its role as a major fossil fuel producing province. She's been doing a lot of quiet relationship building that is creating the groundwork for a provincial network or coalition, a series of public events, and hopefully hiring two local staff people. In Nova Scotia, there seems to be less energy for new grassroots projects, so her focus has been on supporting the work of others and creating more informal opportunities for people to connect, with hopes that a new network will be possible down the road. In both provinces, she's also been engaging in regular advocacy with public officials. An important but little discussed win took place earlier in 2022, after a low-key campaign involving Norton and other climate activists in the city helped ensure that the Halifax Regional Municipality would take the ambitious climate plan it had passed the year before and adequately fund it. While that may seem small, it is the kind of concrete step towards meaningful climate action that many cities have been reluctant to take. For the moment, Norton's work continues along both strands building capacity to implement practical measures, and building grassroots momentum for the kinds of policy changes necessary to implement them as quickly and as widely as we need. I speak with Norton about her work for the Recover Initiative and for the Climate Emergency Unit. My name is Emma Norton. I live in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, traditionally known as the Nmigwajik and Mi'kma'ki. I have two jobs. One of them is as operations director at the Recover Initiative, and Recover is developing a deep retrofit solution that is scalable at the speed required for the climate crisis. And my other job is as Atlantic director with the Climate Emergency Unit. And the Climate Emergency Unit is a project of the David Suzuki Institute. It's just a five-year project where we are mobilizing various sectors and various groups of people throughout this country to force the government into climate emergency mode. We have six pillars of what climate emergency mode looks like based on the book by Seth Klein called The Good War, where he explores how Canada responded in the Second World War and how that can be mirrored in our response to the climate crisis. I'm from Charlottetown, PEI, and I grew up with a lot of class and racial privilege. But like many people, I still experienced some challenging times as I grew up, some family dynamics. And it's quite interesting to me because I have a complicated relationship, as many do with the church now. But I think that a lot of my involvement in community work started with a youth group that I threw myself into in high school and found community through that. The youth group did community mission work. So not the kind of mission work where you try to convert people to believe your religion, but the kind of mission work where you go to someone's home where you know they're struggling and you do some errands for them or you paint their porch or you build a porch. You just try to make their life a little bit easier and offer them a sense of support and community. I found that work very rewarding. During high school, climate became a pretty big issue for me. Well, I remember specifically one of my grade eight teachers describing the water crisis that we're running into where we're running out of fresh, drinkable, potable water. But then I remember watching The Inconvenient Truth in my band class of all places and kind of hitting me how crucial this issue was. But I've always felt more inclined towards issues that are impacting people 
like inequality, poverty. When I was younger, I was much more involved than I am now in child labor, just international issues. And I wrote a paper in high school at some point, I can't remember what grade I was in now, about the genocide in Darfur and the conflict there. And I became pretty obsessed with it. Never been to Darfur, never been to Sudan. But, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, real people are being impacted. And I remember reading something in the Guardian newspaper from the UK. And it talked about how the Darfur conflict was one of the first climate wars because of the way the climate was changing. It was exacerbating tensions between the groups that were in conflict. So that was the beginning of, for me, starting to see climate as something deeply related to the social issues that I was caring about. And then I went to Halifax for university and I became involved with a group of young people that were going to the COP negotiations, the Conference of Parties, the International Panel on Climate Change negotiations. I never went, but I was on the home team and I learned a lot about the kind of direct action that can impact change. And I got lots of training and met lots of amazing people. Right out of university, I landed a job with a local environmental charity called the Ecology Action Center, or EAC. EAC is the environmental watchdog here in Nova Scotia. And originally, I was fundraising for them. And that gave me some really amazing skills. But it also opened up the opportunity for me to apply to jobs in the EAC because they try to hire internally first. And I landed a job with their energy team which was really exciting for me because I had decided at this point in my life that I wanted to focus all my effort on making Atlanta, Canada fossil fuel free. My job was to promote energy efficiency. So I was their energy efficiency coordinator. I did a lot of workshops around the province around the kind of energy efficiency programs that existed. And through that work, I got very involved in the Ecology Action Center's own deep retrofit. So the Ecology Action Center did this major renovation where they reduced their energy consumption by 80% and they increased their floor space by 50%. If you look across Canada, it's very, very, very challenging to find retrofits that have achieved that kind of metric of reducing their energy consumption by more than 50% even. Typically, you don't get much more than 30% reductions using a lot of the incentives and programs that currently exist across the country. So that got me incredibly excited about the importance of deep retrofits and the possibility of them. But we don't have policies in place that make it possible for people to make a massive investment in their buildings to reduce their energy consumption by this much. And it's really complicated to use pretty conventional methods to achieve significant energy savings. Normally, the occupants of the building need to leave for a long time. It's extremely expensive and it just takes a very long time. And even if we built every building to net zero starting today, at least 50% of the buildings standing today will still be standing in 2050 when we're trying to achieve net zero. So what are we going to do about those buildings? We don't really have a retrofit approach that is scalable. And then one day, a colleague sent me this technology called Energy Sprung, and I'm butchering the name. It's a Dutch word, which means energy leap. And it's a way to bring buildings, existing buildings, to net zero in just a matter of days. 
it's a panelized retrofit. So rather than taking all the siding off a building and removing all the windows and re-insulating and giving it new windows, you actually build a 3D drawing of the building, design panels that you will just stick on to the outside of the building. So you give it all new exterior walls, all new roof, and then you give it a new, more efficient, fossil fuel-free mechanical system. And voila, you have a net zero building. And (laughs) this is so cheesy, shows you what a nerd I am. I just like cried. I was like, this is amazing. I need to make this happen in Canada. But it took quite a few years before I was actually able to start working on it. So fast forward, I ran for federal office, went and worked for a different nonprofit. And when I was there, my two other co-founders of Recover, Lori Rand and Nick Rudnicki, reached out to me and said, hey, Emma, we hear you're really passionate about Energy Strong. So are we. And we have a proposal that we'd like you to work with us on. And this first project, we looked at an apartment building in downtown Halifax, trying to see how we could bring it to net zero using Energy Strong technology. And we just got a ton of positive feedback. People are really interested in it because it's just so clear that retrofits are an essential climate solution that we haven't really cracked the nut on yet. Lori and Nick and I have worked very hard for the past two years to try to get recover off the ground and try to develop a solution that can quickly retrofit buildings across the country. We're feeling a little bit like we're on the cusp of it taking off and knocking on wood. That's the case because we're running out of time in our carbon budget. My path with working with the climate emergency unit, you know, as I've mentioned, even if we have the technical solutions, it's like we have recover, we have solar, we have wind. We need the policies in place that will scale all these technologies up fast enough. And I looked at what Canada did during the Second World War, and there's some pretty amazing examples there of how quickly we scaled up certain industries to make sure that we had the necessary equipment, to make sure we had the necessary administration, even when the veterans came back, to make sure we had enough housing. And it's incredible how, when we really put our minds to it, we can respond as if it's an emergency. And right now, we continue to hear that we're in a climate crisis, we're in a climate emergency, but we're definitely not acting like it. So I met Seth Klein, who's the leader of the Climate Emergency Unit and the author of A Good War, through some volunteer work that I was doing with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Nova Scotia's chapter. And I was asked to organize his book launch. And later that year, Seth reached out to me and said, hey, I'm starting a project to implement the ideas in the book. Do you know anyone who might be interested? And I was like, me, I want to do that. I was really lucky that he ended up hiring me into this position. That was about a year and a half ago now. So I've been working with Seth to try to mobilize some people in Atlantic Canada specifically to put pressure on the government to move into climate emergency mode. I focus most of my attention on Newfoundland and Labrador because they are one of the top producers of oil and gas in Canada and greenhouse gas emissions. And for me, that meant spending many months just having one-on-one meetings with people in the province because I didn't want to parachute in and say, this is what you need to do. I tried to talk to as many people as possible and ask them who I should talk to, find out what they thought about how we can make a climate movement happen in Newfoundland, Labrador. What that has looked like for me is 
taking that group of people that I've talked to, those that were interested, and trying to start something like a coalition or a network where we can work together to further the climate justice and just transition movement in Newfoundland Labrador. And I think in that province in particular, the conversation is more about a just transition than it is about a climate emergency, because so many people are extremely reliant on oil and gas for their jobs. And we can't just say, well, you need to move to a new industry, or we're going to shut down your industry, we need a clear path, or else the future where we take climate action is very scary. So we're going to be doing, hopefully, a bit of a tour of the province or hosting some community sessions to talk about what the Just Transition looks like and ask for a Just Transition Act from the province and a Just Transition Transfer, some money from the federal government to actually make it happen. I've been building up to this work. I'm getting feedback from the community members themselves, and hopefully we'll hire two people that actually live in Newfoundland and Labrador to do the work. And in Nova Scotia, I tried to get a coalition off the ground. There wasn't a lot of energy for it. People aren't excited about another meeting, about another coalition. So what I'm trying to focus my energy on here is trying to support the work of others and trying to hold some like more joyful community events. So just two weeks ago, I teamed up with Ecology Action Center, the NSGEU, that's a local union, and with Wonderneath Studio to host a community barbecue and just try to bring people who have similar values together and enjoy some food, do some fun things. I'd like to be doing more of that. And then hopefully once we've got a little bit more energy and people aren't feeling so spread thin and tired out, then it might be time to put together a proposal similar to the one in Newfoundland and Labrador. I will say like a lot of my work to this point has also been meeting with government officials. Meeting with government officials is really important. And it's especially important because they don't hear from people like me that do this kind of work nearly as often as they hear from lobbyists in the fossil fuel industry. But it's really important to like match the government relations with an external public drumbeat that says this is what we need because in the end politicians want to be re-elected and they want to know this is what their constituents want. So the lessons from Seth's book that I impart on them are these six markers like what it would look like if a government is in climate emergency they are spending what it takes to win. So C.D. Howe during the Second World War said, if we don't win this, nothing else matters. And that's paraphrasing. But that's essentially true about the climate crisis. This is an existential threat. Creating new institutions. So we created 28 new crown corporations during the Second World War. And, you know, in the past few years, only crown corporations made by this federal government were for the Trans-Canada Pipeline and for the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So we could be much more imaginative about crown corporations and the way that the government can help increase the industrialization required for climate change. We also need to move from incentives to mandates. So right now we're trying to incentivize our way to change. It's like we have some rebates, but really what we need to do is make change mandatory. The fourth marker would be telling the truth. We don't have an excellent communication from any level of government around climate. During COVID, you know, we heard about COVID every day. It's another great example. That is what an emergency felt like. And we don't get that level of 
information about climate. And it would be really amazing to see like a climate emergency information board to get real up-to-date narratives around what we're doing for climate in Canada. We need to talk about how severe the crisis is, but also impart this feeling of hope that we can do it. So those four markers were reflected during the Second World War. And then at the Climate Emergency Unit, we've added two more markers that are essential for climate specifically. And one of them is leave no one behind. We can't have mandates if we're not making sure that everyone has housing and everyone has food and everyone has health care. And this has to do with this just transition piece, too. And the final one is respecting and uplifting Indigenous sovereignty. I can talk all I want about recover, about retrofits around wind and solar, but we really need to be focusing our efforts on Indigenous-led solutions. And someone who is a settler, I'm trying to do a better job of following the lead of Indigenous leadership on climate action and recognizing that because of water protectors and land defenders, we have more time to tackle climate because they've stopped so many fossil fuel projects at this point. I understand that there was a campaign that you were involved in as part of your climate emergency unit work late last year and early this year around getting Halifax Regional Municipality to fund its climate plan. Talk a bit about that. Halifax has a really exciting climate plan to reduce its emissions by 75% by 2030, retrofit 100% of its buildings by 2035. Like these are ambitious timelines that actually are in line with the climate crisis. And that's fine to have a plan. It's extremely important. But if you're not adequately resourcing it, you're setting yourself up for failure. Late last year, there was a news article that came out that said, Halifax was proposing a climate levy on property taxes. And I honestly did not respond well to that because we don't hear about climate action very much as something that our community is actually undertaking. And it's still very politicized and divisive. And taxes are one of the things that are even more politicized and divisive. So to tie climate with a climate tax I thought was going to make our climate plan in Halifax fail before it even really got going. Because people don't want taxes to go up right now, especially property taxes where we have a housing crisis in Halifax. So I got together with a few other climate activists and we talked about like, how are we going to respond to this? We absolutely need to resource climate, but tagging it onto a climate tax, and that's the only thing the public has heard about climate action in Halifax, this just won't get the public support that's necessary. We know from some research, I think only one in five people in Halifax even knew we had a climate plan. I'm sure many more people now know that we have a climate tax than we have a climate plan, or maybe the number has increased because of this. But we decided to start a campaign that wasn't focused on the climate tax. The campaign was to spend what it takes. Halifax needs to spend what it takes for climate. We mapped out the councillors who would vote on the municipal budget and who would vote for climate action and who would vote against it and who was maybe in the middle. And we started reaching out to people in our community and saying, do you want your councillor to vote for climate action and to vote to put money towards climate action? And if they did, we asked them to send them a note or to give them a call or ask for a meeting to talk about it. 
honestly, it was a very quiet campaign. We weren't public about it. It was a lot of just relational meetings. It worked very well. By the time the budget rolled around, there was almost no opposition to the climate tax. There was two, I think, very vocal counselors that weren't in support of it. But in general, it wasn't even up for discussion anymore. And that's because it was couched in this idea that we need to spend what it takes on climate. So that was really important because we need wins. It was really important because it pointed to the fact that we need to spend money on climate. Like budget is where the rubber hits the road. And now Halifax has the funds it needs to make some major investments into climate. Again, the campaign wasn't like a sexy, like very public campaign. The win was super anticlimactic, wasn't even that exciting because it wasn't even debated during the budget. But for us, that was a massive win because it didn't need to be debated. It was just assumed that it was going to happen. Draw together for listeners the importance of paying attention to both kinds of climate work that you're involved in. The practical solutions on the one hand and the mobilization and policy work on the other. So I think from the policy side of things, my experience is that there's many, many bureaucrats and people that work as public servants who absolutely are on our side and politicians too. But the people that are really going to get the work done are the public servants. And they are people like you and I, who you only have so many hours in the day, you're still a human, and they don't always have the answers. What I've found is more often than not, they're like, love that idea, Emma, how are we going to operationalize that? And that's one of the reasons I find my work on Recover really complimentary is it's like, here you go. This is how you do the retrofits. And that's one of the reasons I find Seth Klein's book so interesting and helpful is it also talks about how you operationalize it. This is what it looks like if your policies were actually emergency. They wouldn't be incentives. They'd be mandates. You'd be building public corporations that actually make retrofits happen or make sure that we don't run into a backlog of EVs. At the same time, here I am working on that solution and... I don't want to only be selling my product to rich corporations that can afford it. I want policies in place that protect the tenants from getting renovicted during a renovation. I mean, the whole point of recover is that tenants don't need to move out, but how do you prevent the landlord from increasing rents if you go through a renovation process? And it's just doing the work of trying to actually get a big technology, a big vision like this off the ground, just made it so clear to me that, this comes back to my earlier point, it it just made it so clear to me that just telling elected officials or just telling bureaucrats they need to do something and they need to figure it out because it's their job isn't really going to work. We have to be part of building the solutions also. My feeling is I can't continue to work on Recover if there aren't policies in place that actually support it expanding. And we can't put in place policies that expand retrofits if we don't have technologies that allow for retrofits to happen at the scale that's necessary. And I think that's true of a lot of climate solutions. You have been listening to my interview with Emma Norton of the Recover Initiative and the Climate Emergency Unit. Look for them at recoverinitiative.ca and climateemergencyunit.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.